Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Reese Mandel. Hello, everybody. Eric Klein here. And today we're going to talk about network neutrality again. And, and network neutrality is basically the principle that we should have a free and open internet. And we say free, we mean free as in speech, not free as in beer. So it's not saying that all of us <laughs> should just simply have internet access that we never pay for, but that the communications that we're paying for, the internet access that we pay for, should give us equal rights to transmit and receive information. That there shouldn't be any roadblocks in front of us. There shouldn't be any uh, slowdown lanes or fast lanes, but rather that we can all uh, communicate freely. This has been a struggle that's been ongoing since the Internet was young. And, you know, what's always made the Internet so unique as a communications tool is how um, how when it's open, which it has been relatively open in this uh 20-some-odd-year history of it, of the internet being available to us, um, it really functions in a way that's completely different than radio and television, and even, especially radio, where there really is a, a limited amount of space on a radio dial, and uh, it, it turns into a real estate market. But the internet is so much broader than that, and really that, that potential that anybody could get on there and serve up uh, the same kind of information that used to be only available when uh, when large financial entities, when big corporations were giving us that news and content. Uh, it's there for all of us. But, of course, now in 2019 and 2020, the large corporations that provide the Internet to us have a financial interest in, in remaking the rules. And that's been what the struggle has been about uh, low these many decades. And the reason why we care here at Radio Survivor is because, I mean, we're living in a digital audio world. Increasingly, when people are getting their audio, it's over the internet, whether they're streaming it on their smartphones, on their smart speakers, or they're at home on a desktop, or sometimes even on an internet radio. They're listening to radio, they're listening to streaming music, they're listening to podcasts, and all sorts of audio that is being distributed via the internet. So whether or not there's a free and open internet directly impacts our ability to receive these streams and to transmit. And especially at Radio Survivor, we care about the small players out there, community radio stations, college radio stations, community podcasters, upstarts looking to create new networks, uh, looking to to create new channels and, and possibly new programs out there that are on the internet so that maybe it, it requires less capital than creating a radio station or less uh, time and investment than creating a radio station, right? That has been sort of how the Internet has helped to foster new media, new medium right. platforms such as podcasts yeah, and gonna, streaming radio. I, I want to add to that that really the free and open Internet, net neutrality matters the most because the future of community media is certainly online. And while while radio is, is a big part of that and sound is a big part of that, there's so many other ways that the Internet, uh, of course, video, but, but the – the, the lanes being open both ways, the, the, the two-way communication that is also available online. All of these things, the, the future of community media has yet to be lived. And a network that is neutral to that content, a free and open internet, is, is, uh, would appear to be a much better way to, um, 
to allow those seeds to grow in a fertile in a fertile media landscape and a network that is more controlled by the companies that provide us the internet and there's fast lanes and slow lanes and toll booths and taxes to be paid all to get on the network to communicate that would close off the the potential and possibilities of a future community media that we here at Radio Survivor are not even uh, sure how it will shape up in the in the decade to come. So there recently was a court decision coming out of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, which was examining new rules passed by the current FCC headed up by Republican Chairman Ajit Pai. And it's it's a mixed decision when it comes to the public interest in community media. So we look to go find some folks to help us better understand what the implications are. We're joined on the line by Dr. Christopher Terry, Assistant Professor of Media Law and Ethics at the Hubbard School of Journalism at the University of Minnesota. Welcome, Christopher. Always great to be here. And Tim Carr is the Senior Director of Free Press from New York City. Welcome, Tim. It's good to be with you. Okay. Network neutrality, the free and open internet, as we've been calling it these years, was back in court, was back on the front page of uh, the newspapers that talk about it, and it was uh, they split the baby, if that's a reasonable way to say it. Uh, Tim Carr, how would, you, how would you describe the latest news that just broke? Well, uh, the, the Federal Appeals Court in Washington, D.C. rendered a decision earlier this week, and, and it wasn't uh, one that we had hoped for. We were hoping that they would reject the FCC's 2017 ruling called the Open Internet Order and return to the 2015 net neutrality rules which were, were won under an Obama administration, FCC, that put in place strong net neutrality protections. What we, uh, in the interim, obviously, we had a new president, uh, we had a new FCC chairman, and in 2017, he repealed those net neutrality rules. A number of organizations, including my own Free Press, but Mozilla and others, um, brought the FCC to court in hopes of reject that the court would reject those rules. The court ruled instead that uh, that the that it would uphold the FCC 2017 ruling. This is the anti-net neutrality ruling, but there were some conditions. So when you say you know, they split the baby, uh, they were they they did look at other aspects of of our argument. Um, for example, we we argued that the FCC could preempt states from making their own net neutrality rules, and, and nine states have, have already done that and since the 2017 rules. And they, they ruled that at the state level, and even to some extent, even local, there are a number of cities have been take, that have been taking action, that the FCC didn't really have the correct authority to preempt uh, state-level net neutrality rules. So net neutrality has gone local. Um, there are a lot of states, including big states like California, small states like Vermont, that have put net neutrality rules on the books. And in the wake of this ruling, which is really a disappointment, um, certainly in regard to federal net neutrality protections, uh, we expect to see a number of other states take up legislation that would provide open internet safeguards for their yeah. citizens. And Christopher, you've been following this uh, for far too long. Were, did this surprise you? Um, a little bit. Uh, the 2015 net neutrality order was, uh, the Title II order, was actually a pretty pro-consumer uh, bill that actually protected quite a bit of 
the major structural issues that net neutrality as a concept is designed to protect, protect it against blocking by ISPs, throttling by ISPs, and paid priority by ISPs. Mm-hmm. And that decision, which the FCC handed down in 2015 under Tom Wheeler, went to court three times. It uh, was upheld. The order was upheld by the D.C. Circuit um, in its first go-round. The FCC appealed to the uh, full panel, an end bank review, and they didn't take the case. They essentially said that the the original panel had done it correctly. And then the FCC tried to extend out the appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. They actually argued for a substantial delay over seven attempts to get a delay before the case would go to the court while they were working on the 2017 uh, order. And the Supreme Court, when in the case finally did go to the Supreme Court, um, the Supreme Court didn't grant cert, which upholds the original uh, decision from the panel. So the issue was largely settled. We had a workable net neutrality plan for the first time that passed judicial review. And when Ajit Pai took over the FCC in their attempt to do this in 2017, they were trying to overturn a policy that did something that the FCC had not been able to do on net neutrality over a 10-year span, which was pass a law or pass a regulation that could withstand judicial review. And they had they had that in their hand. It was a workable system that everybody understands. Title II is quite, or Title II regulations pretty old and it's pretty well understood and it's not really that complicated. But the FCC based on ideology, wanted that rule to go away, and uh, they implemented that, and um, the court agreed with the FCC, but it's important should, to I know wanna, that... I want to interrupt court, and just let, I just want to let listeners know that the Title II uh, concept is an interesting one and worth defining that, you know, is th- is this internet that we get into our homes and businesses, um, is it like uh, is it like the water and the power and, and the gas, uh, should it, you know... Or, or is it um, is it something else? I guess I don't know what the opposite of a utility would be, but please go ahead, Christopher. Well, it would be an unregulated situation, which is largely what we have now. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the FCC didn't need to do what it did in 2017. It chose to do that. And what the court said is that the FCC is allowed to choose that with a few conditions, one dealing with public safety, one dealing with uh, authority to control how broadband infrastructure is attached to telephone poles. And then there's another provision relating to the lifeline uh, program that were all remanded to the agency. But what the court said is not that the 2015 rules were wrong. It just said that the FCC has the authority to change its mind and apply this new, what is referred to as a light touch regulation, which is a really kind of creepy turn, by the way. Yeah. And repeal what they had done in 2015. It's basically a policy choice, and the court said the agency had acted appropriately in making that choice. And so we can imagine that the that FCC under Donald Trump's appointment to, to head the, the body, Ajit Pai, that they're going to start making new policy about the network? They're going to unneutral the network? Is that is that fair, Tim Carr? Well, it's, uh, I mean, they have, what they have done is they've removed uh, internet access providers from this Title II classification. And Title II, um, it, I think calling it a utility regulation is not actually quite accurate. It actually just, it, it is a common carriage rule, basically states that they need to treat 
the content that travels across their pipes equally, that they can't discriminate in favor of certain content over others. And, and so when you remove that common carriage standard, which is what the 2017 order did, um, then these, they, they don't have to add any more regulation or they don't need to do any more. They're just basically freeing up companies like Comcast or AT&T and Verizon to, um, to do largely whatever they like. And as you know, companies like Comcast also owns NBC Universal, which has content properties that stream via the internet. Uh, AT&T owns HBO, with a similar scenario. Verizon also has some content properties. So there is a built-in incentive for these large phone and cable companies to prioritize their products, their streaming services, their music services, if they have them, over ones that are provided by competitors. So it's not, the FCC doesn't really need to do anything more in regard to the order that they, they put in place in 2017, uh, the because they've the- basically said, you know, internet access, here, we're giving control over internet choice to you. Common Carriage put control of choice in the hands of internet users. They've handed it to the ISPs basically and said, well, you know, you can, uh, there's, there are ways that you can prioritize um, the products and services that you right. have and, or, or partnerships with people that you have, you can prioritize the speed at which uh, those products are delivered over others. We won't interfere. So the next, um, and they also, they did mention that the FTC, the federal trade commission hat will have some authority to adjudicate complaints, but really in looking at that authority, it's clear that it's, it's the FTC has never been a strong enforcer of rules and certainly not with regard to the internet. So in a, lot, really, of, in a lot of ways now, the, if, if we're watching this story unfold, the next, the next place to keep our eye is what are the internet service providers going to, to do with the, with the power that now has been granted them by the courts and the FCC, who are they going to throttle first? Uh, well, I mean, I think there's a, they have an incentive. I mean, so, so one of the things that's happening with the internet, I mean, it used to be, you know, I can remember the old dial up days when I was just excited to get my email to download in time. Um, but it, you know, now we're doing almost all things media. We're listening to music, we're yeah. watching videos, um, where we're engaging in live teleconferences, it thinks via a high-speed internet connection. Right, not just um, and not increasing just, that is and, the future of all media, and not just consuming it, but also uh, serving it up, like getting anybody, yeah, uploading, anybody, it. anywhere, sharing can, information, yeah. we're creating things, and uh, and so that is the future. Of, you know, there's a lot of money, a lot of a lot of these companies. It used to be Netflix was the only game in town. I mean, there was Hulu and YouTube to some extent, but now. All of these media properties are looking at a streaming model for serving up their content properties. So you can, you have Amazon Prime getting into the game. You know, the networks are getting into the game. Right, the Disney. Um, some the, of these the Comcast whole, is getting into the game. The big and Disney so they have channel. an incentive then to prioritize that. Yeah, what's that? The very large Disney uh, streaming product that that uh, yes, that Disney seems, as well. That seems to be um, the the you know the hundred pound the hundred jillion pound gorilla. Uh, on the scene, and so be very. It's it's all, it's like right. it's clearly a new marketplace where there's a lot of uh, potential yes. to get these companies to to either pay 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 rent or. It's basically a road tax, and we've seen it before. There was a brief period of time between the Verizon decision 
and when the FCC was able to pass the Title II rules, where there was basically the only time up until now where there wasn't any rule structure in place. Yeah, there what, was sort of a threat dates? of a rule structure. What were the dates for that, Chris? Roughly, um, roughly. Well, the Verizon decision was in 2011, so it was yeah, right after that. So we had yeah. a we had a period of time where where uh, we had a window of opportunity to sort of understand uh, what what an unneutral network would would be like as a consumer. Right, and the empirical evidence from that time was not good. Um, Tim mentioned Netflix. Netflix basically was getting choked off by major. ISPs and it slowed down to a point to where it was almost unusable until Netflix and its provider level three agreed to essentially pay the road tax to get back on the, the quick stream. The problem, one of the problems with this is that it doesn't account for how the media is structured. A long time ago, a cable company couldn't own the companies that also produced content. The cable company was just in the business of driving you the content from people who made it into your house and the cable company made money by delivering the content. Mm -hmm. But after consolidation, what happened is those rules changed substantially and through both vertical and horizontal integration of the, the industry, the cable companies not only own the mechanism that delivers that content, they also own their own content. So now you're going to, what you're, what you're likely to see is that, companies have an incentive as Tim's saying to direct you to the content that they own and direct you away from content that they're either having to pay for or trade for or is put out by one of their competitors and there's a natural incentive there to try to get you to use their stuff and they have the mechanism to make that happen and make essentially move their stuff into the fast lane so it's easy to get and move the competitor's stuff into a slower lane Unless, of course, the competitor is willing to pay the tax to move it back into the fast lane. Mm -hmm. So you have, you have kind of a weird structure now. You have edge providers who were fighting this. Mozilla is an edge provider. They're not an internet, internet service provider. They provide content on the web itself. They, you know, they have a direct incentive in making sure that the ISP can't direct you away from the content that they're trying to deliver. So that, was their, you know, that was sort of their point. But your ISPs now um, are really in a position to sort of dictate what content you can have and at what speed. And startups like the Disney, I mean, not that Disney's a startup, but Disney's streaming service and lots of the other ones that are about to come online, they don't direct content directly into the home. They direct content into that pipeline. But that pipeline is basically a toll bridge in that last mile that connects to the house. And there's going to be a significant industry fight over how that's going to work out. And that's a direct result of this. When the Title II rules were in place before this order was handed down from the FCC, the ISP could make money on delivering the content into your home, but they had to treat all of the content in that system exactly the same. Yeah, and again... Yeah, and, I, and I think that the decision really hands control over the future of media to ISPs, this is, you know, there has been a lot of people, and I think incorrectly in many ways, have characterized the net neutrality battle as a clash of titans. On, on the, in the one corner, you had the large phone and cable companies like AT&T, Verizon, and Comcast. And in the other, you had a sort of uh, dominant, growing edge providers like Facebook and Google 
and uh, um, Amazon, and and that, that there was a clash between them and, the, and what at stake is the is the future of media. This decision tilts that in favor of the ISPs who are now in a position to broker these sorts of deals with the Disney's and all of these these uh, these on demand pay. Um, television, streaming television services that are that are coming online, they're now in a position, almost like a like a mafia boss, to broker these deals uh, and to benefit from them handsomely, and to be able to pick winners and losers in the game. And, and a lot of people are very concerned about that component of this because because it stifles the smaller startups, it stifles the smaller innovators, it stifles the sort of niche. Um, video services, the niche digital services, who can't afford to fight against, you know, they, they can't, they can't bid against ABC. They can't, you know, get that, that space on the network um, because we have taken away these net neutrality protections that allowed people to choose them as freely as they would choose any other service. And again, I mean, we're, it's, it, it's easy to keep talking about um, uh, what used to be called watching television. It's easy to talk about the streaming video and the the blockbuster the blockbuster movies uh, on the big screen in our homes. But it, what's also at stake is um, is this another kind of media that maybe is even you know one one step removed from our current imagination of what's possible. Like I'm thinking of how uh, let's say Greta. Thurnberg's generation and how they are going to use the media to, to do their work to change the world and that that idea of what 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 work they they plan to do uh, with the airwaves with with the internet um, we haven't even seen it yet but we don't want uh, we don't want that possibility to be closed off for this model where where the ISPs have such a, a outs has such a huge power over the content yes that is at stake I think you know it's it's interesting I, at Professor. Tim Wu, a couple of years ago, wrote a book about about cycles in media technology, and 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 his basic analysis was that there would if you look at the history of media, if you look at radio, if you look at television, there's always been this process where the where the technology is first introduced, and there's this very open, yeah. it's a very open technology, it's a very inclusive technology, and over time, as powerful interests recognize that you could make money using this new medium, they closed down control. It happened with the consolidation of radio ownership. It had happened with the consolidation of television ownership, too. We reached a point where there were really just a few companies that dominated those realms. And we, you know, we've been through about, about 25 years of, of, the, of the first phase of the Internet. In many ways, it feels like that cycle is happening all over. We're seeing this. We've gone through this period of openness and innovation and inclusion, where a lot of those young, creative minds can actually find a space on the network and potentially reach an audience of millions. To a point where we have now, where increasingly, it's a, just a few number, uh, a small number of companies that are controlling most of the content that goes over the network. And it's true for ISPs, obviously. In the absence of net neutrality, they have this new power. But we're also looking on the edge provider side. Is so much so much information sharing is now consolidated amongst a very small number of social media platforms. Like you know, Facebook with its 2.7 billion members right. uh, has incredible power over internet content as well. So so that cycle of closure 
is upon us. And I yeah. think that net neutrality is one of the hopes that we have to try to keep this network as op- open for as long as possible. Yeah, and what's what's interesting about mentioning Facebook and its control over the you know the marketplace of of eyeballs is that I remember an internet in in the late '90s and the early 2000s that. Um, Different different websites would come along and dominate our attention for a moment, but there was always the possibility that literally tomorrow a brand new shiny website would would just uh, would just appear and everyone would shift over. It was a kind of amazing feeling. So when Facebook came along in in the aughts, I just imagined that it was going to have its five year lifespan and then go away. And even though that that lifespan has uh, definitely been longer than five years. That is still always a distinct possibility in a free and open internet that, that literally tomorrow a new company could come along and uh, and give us, give the people who want to make things and share things uh, a better experience. And everyone can switch over since we didn't, you know, we didn't even pay for Facebook in the first place. Uh, that That is always a possibility, but it seems like um, you do need, I mean, that is part of network neutrality, is it not? That that uh, the, you would need a, yeah. a, a free open lane for this new player to appear. Uh, and if, if they would have to pay the tax, as Dr. Christopher Derry uh, described it, you know, pay a road tax to get on the internet uh, to provide something for millions of people, um, that's going to be a lot less likely to see in the future. It's certainly going to limit startups' um, ability to immediately compete. And in an ironic way... Um, what we've essentially done is turn the internet into the scarcity that we see with broadcasting and that limits entry, you know, because of physical spectrum, there's a limitation on the number of radio and television licenses there could ever be in the United States. And ironically now entry is also going to be complicated by the fact that there's going to be barriers to entry on the internet. But remember we kind of got off the, the what's really different as a result of this, decision, and that is that the 2015 rules really prevented the ISPs from interfering with consumer choice. And although the Title II system wasn't an absolute, it was probably a good, not a great system, uh, functionally. Mm -hmm. It it worked, and everybody sort of knew how it worked, and that was sort of the best we had done to that point. This system gives all the power back to the ISPs. They, They there's no power sharing. There's no sort of gentleman's agreement. There's no sort of tacit understanding on how this works for an ISP to block you from content. They only have to admit that they're doing it for them to control the speed at which your content uh, comes at you. They only have to um, disclose that they're doing that. And if they're going to provide paid prioritization, they have to disclose that It's sort of a built-in transparency. And Tim mentioned before that the FTC is sort of seen as the organization that's going to take over the regulation of this. Well, there's an issue to be discussed about whether or not the FCC should be advocating its responsibilities under the Communication Act. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, the Federal Trade Commission only only really enforces things using what's known as the deception standard. So as long as these companies are admitting what they're doing and yeah. disclosing it, the FTC's ability to regulate net neutrality basically is non-existent. And that's a really important part of the story that seems to go unmentioned. But an important part of the decision was about the public safety issue. And there's a lot of dispute over this. Uh, There's been a lot of sort of back and forth as the sides have kind of sniped at each other over this. 
But a lot of what the actual decision is about is an actual real-world case that after the open internet order was handed down by the AFCC, Verizon actually did throttle back a unique group of people in our society in a really bad situation. And by that, I mean firefighters that were using their mobile devices to communicate out in the California wildfire. Yeah, it was actually so, um, the, you know, what, what they actually were doing was it was the, um, the like mobile command center that was uh, right. operating out there in, in the dry hillsides of, of a small town in California. That mobile command center was depending on a little SIM card in their, in their gigantic, you know, multi-million dollar piece of uh, life-saving equipment. And when they ran out of data because they were so busy, uh, their, their ability to communicate with, you know, to download the maps and to, to communicate with, the, with people in the field, it was throttled. That was a, that was a big story um, last summer. And as a result of that, the part of the decision which came out recently includes a remand of the FCC to deal with that part of net neutrality. How do we handle these controls, these throttling, this blocking, when the people that are using the network are public safety individuals? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not a complete win for the FCC, but what is going to happen is that the control over content delivery goes to the ISP. They can basically choose what you see and what you don't see and at what speed you see it at as long as they tell you that they're going to do it. And that's just problematic, right? I, I said the Title II system was good. I never defended it as a great system, but it was a functional system that had withstood judicial review. Now, as this battle is going to move towards the state, state laws like the one in California, we're going to be in court for years over this now. And, and it's, it's unresolved again. Yeah. And we're back to where we were 10 years ago. But it's not a not a great development. But this time, while while the battle is go is is in the courts, uh, the rules that the that the FCC uh, wanted, where where network neutrality is effectively dead on the national level, um, those rules are in effect. I mean, I guess but I guess we'll find out state by state now. Um, we're talking about network neutrality today on Radio Survivor. My name is Eric Klein. That was the voice of Dr. Christopher Terry, Assistant Professor of Media Law and Ethics at the Hubbard School of Journalism at the University of Minnesota. We're also on the line with Tim Carr, who is the Senior Director of Free Press. Uh, Tim, can you tell us about now how things are going to shift to the states? To um, it, I mean, it really isn't the end of the story at all. It's, it's really just the beginning no. of a whole new chapter. Well, yeah, in many ways, net neutrality is going, the fight for net neutrality is going to go local. Um, in the wake of the, the 2017 decision that took away these Title II protections, a number of states stepped into the void. We've mentioned California, but Oregon and Washington and Rhode Island, Vermont, New York. Um, and they, they crafted their own legislation in some cases and passed that through the various state houses. In some cases, the governor's mansion, they put together an executive order that was signed by the governor. Um, and so there are, there is, and I think, you know, uh, there is a patchwork of net neutrality protections in these many states. Um, at the same time, and this is a project that I worked very closely on, more than 125 mayors from cities large and small, New York City, uh, uh, normal, uh, normal Ohio, Normal Illinois, sorry, Normal <laughs> Illinois signed a, uh, their mayor signed a net neutrality pledge that effectively said that they would not, the city would not be doing business with any ISP that didn't honor 
the Title II net neutrality rules. So that was 125 cities. So now that patchwork is getting even more complicated because you you know you we go from state to state, city to city as an ISP, and you're constantly having to pivot around what the local rules dictate. Um, and so, and what we'll see likely, and something that that we're working on at Free Press and other organizations that have been advocates for net neutrality is uh, is other states taking up legislation. Uh, there were, in addition to the nine states that I mentioned earlier, there were 27 additional states that introduced legislation in some form. Uh, and, and in many cases, the legislative clock just ran out before they can, they can uh, get their legislation signed. There's a new impetus for other states now to take up uh, local legislation. So that's that's the local fight, which is going to be very complicated, very interesting as a as a political organizer. Uh, when you can organize at a local level like that, it's very advantageous, it, it, and it also builds momentum for ultimately what I see as the solution to the net neutrality issue, which a lot of it hinges on on uh, where what happens in November 2020. Right. Um, if we the 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 majority uh, at the FCC is determined by the person who sits in the White House, um, seven of the 10, um, the 10 most prominent, and as of that, last time I checked, there were 14 Democratic uh, candidates that may even be larger than that, but set the, the 10 most prominent, seven of those 10 say that they will restore uh, net neutrality protections if elected uh, president. So, you know, that depends on uh, who sits in the White House. It also depends on what happens in Congress. So there are numerous ways to, to skin uh, this cat, but I think, uh, having worked on this issue since 2005, uh, that momentum in favor of net neutrality on the public side just keeps growing and growing. So I, I feel, and I'm confident, and, and I know this, this 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 decision, recent decision, was a setback. I'm I'm just I'm confident that over time, net neutrality will win out. That leads me to the question, Tim Carr of Free Press. Uh... Do I understand this correctly? Aren't we sort of in this uh, situation where where the FCC does something and then the courts it you know network neutrality has been uh, uh, up in the air and uh, it's it's been a difficult story to sort of tell simply because it's always uh, it's always in the courts but it's between you know and then the FCC is controlled by whoever uh, is controls the White House and it's constantly changing and even even that has been fascinating because. Uh, for for a significant amount of time, the Obama controlled FCC was was not in favor of network neutrality. Before it was in favor of network neutrality, couldn't this all change if there were a legitimate uh, if there was a legitimate interest in the U.S. Congress to uh, to pass strong network neutrality laws? Uh, that that yes, would just it change the change. Point. And, and and it has to some degree already uh, when the two uh, in the wake of the two thousand. And 17 decision, uh, members of Congress uh, in, have introduced a number of pieces of legislation. And the only one that has actually got, made it through the House is the Save the Internet Act, which was, was introduced by Representative Mike Doyle. Um, that passed the House. That, that piece of legislation effectively restores the 2015 Title II net neutrality protections. Um, and it was it, it 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 passed through a house where there is obviously a Democratic majority, um, and then when it arrived on the doorstep of 
Mitch McConnell's office in the Senate, he said, well, this is dead on arrival. So, so I think ultimately, yes, to avoid this cycle of, you know, FCC orders that are then challenged in the court, uh, depending on who's in the majority at the FCC at the time, and if that switches, everything starts over again. You know, this, you know, that's, uh, you know, uh, you, the FCC interprets legislation, it doesn't write it. And in order for you to get lasting net neutrality protections, you're going to need to get something out of Congress uh, that would ultimately, obviously, then be signed by the White House. And uh, the political calculus is still shifting. But I think over time, we've seen political support for net neutrality grow. There was a time when we first started working on this issue back in 2006 uh, that uh, that um, the phone and cable lobby was so powerful in Congress that you had members on both sides of the aisle um, opposed to net neutrality. And uh, the, the evolution of their position on net neutrality has been pretty startling, stunning, positive over the years. And it's largely been in response to a lot of the good organizing that's happened um, among their constituents who now are more and more aware of the issue, um, certainly very passionate about it, and not afraid to pick up their phone and call their members of Congress and tell them uh, where they think they should stand. Yeah, there's been a lot of um, good stories to tell about about days days that things l- didn't look so good for network neutrality, and then and then something something funny would happen where where uh, lots of people would suddenly care about the issue and then communicate that passion. Uh, to their representatives, and then their representatives uh, would hear them. Who who'd have thunk that 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 that's still how uh, how things could work in our system? Uh, I wonder if it's time to talk about uh, why we run the internet this way at all in this country. Because I mean, these are I don't know if these were decisions that were made or if this is just the a default position that now this thing that we all depend upon so much, the internet. Um, is you know the fact that that the ISPs now hold all the cards and have the power to to make these choices about what gets through and what gets taxed and what what won't go at all through our system through our internet um why did it turn out this way who did was the system designed this way or is this just um is it just like a funny accident well it's a little of both actually um you know, the, the point about Congress can't be separated from the question that you're asking right now. The controlling information that the FCC relies on when it regulates the Internet today is from 1996, from yeah. the Telecommunications Act, as a matter of fact. And we're really, in many ways, looking at the Internet in a regulatory fashion anyway, as if it's still a phone line when we dial up AOL way back when. And Congress can't ignore the fact or they shouldn't ignore it they, they're doing a pretty good job <laughs> they of actually certainly can. <laughs> um, they uh they have to take some responsibility for this this dispute essentially starts in 2005 right with a republican administration under michael powell at the fcc who wanted to put some guidelines into place uh sort of for isps to follow in delivering content and then in 2009 Comcast wins the first case against net neutral rules. That's followed by another loss by the FCC in the Verizon decision with a second set of net neutrality rules. 
And then there's an intervening period of time where the FCC is wrestling with what rules to actually put on the books that eventually culminates with the 2015 rules. So it's, this isn't a new problem. I mean, the delegation is over 20 years old. It's from the 1996 Telecommunications Act. But it's also Congress could have stepped in at any point. Now, our current Congress is quite dysfunctional, and it doesn't look like that's going to get resolved anytime soon. But a bill has passed out of the House that's languishing in the Senate as things sit now. And we're, we can't deny that Congress had a role to play in creating this, this situation. Tim mentioned it before. The FCC doesn't make its own rules. It interprets the instructions it was given by Congress. That's how administrative agencies work. And the instructions are that old. And that, coupled with Section 230's influence on how edge providers and web platforms give us content and are protected by liability for doing so. That's really how the internet became what it is today. It's the fact that we're just kind of left it to itself and it's become sort of a regulatory wild west. And, is, and that's probably, probably true since this order was handed down and now upheld by the court. And that's and that's a relatively new phenomenon, I'm going to guess, and you can correct me, like when, when the radio was as young as the internet was, uh, we lived in a in a different sort of political system, although the rules were the same, but the, the individuals who held office were different. And uh, they didn't, did, I'm going to assume that they did not allow, uh, you know, an, uh, 25 years to go by without, without changing the laws that regulated this, uh, this new medium as it became more and more important. Like it's sort of, no, a, and they weren't terrified. They weren't terrified of regulation to solve problems. And that's, that is a significant difference uh, pre and post 1996 is that the current generation of people at the FCC really don't like regulation at a fundamental level and they try to do as little of it as they can. We've had multiple discussions about media ownership. Part of the battle that the FCC's fought on media ownership for all this time is over doing as little regulation as actually possible. And that's what the open internet order represents. It's a sort of a, a way to reduce the workload on the FCC and in the process sort of leave it out there. But when radio and even when television was handed down after the sixth report in order in 1954, those were pretty heavy regulatory burdens to control for the problems that were inherent in those industries at the time. And I think that speaks to the, the, evo the evolution of the, of you know thinking about regulation since the Reagan era, where where this this sort of libertarian free market um, proselytizing has actually you know seeped into these administrative agencies, where we now have you know as chairman of the FCC, someone who who is a proud libertarian in many respects, and and has this sort of almost religious like. Uh, reverence for deregulation, and and uh, and while uh, Chairman Ajit Pai has often said that he will make rules based on a careful analysis of the evidence that comes before him, it's clear from his history of rulemaking that there is another philosophy at play there. It's not a fact-based analysis, but it's about a belief in this kind of free market capitalism, the sort of trickle-down economics that has dictated um, the majority of his decisions. And uh, so uh, so what we were 
one of the things that we were quite upset with in the ruling that came down is that that there there wasn't uh, too much analysis of his justification. Uh, Ajit Pai justified taking this action on the belief that mm. the net neutrality rules that passed in 2015 had seriously hampered investment by internet service providers in, in improving their networks and capital expenditures to, to reach new communities and, and improve and in, innovate on the technology. Um, very thorough analysis that has occurred since then has shown that none of that was true, that the basic premise that Ajit Pai put forth, which was based on this idea that you lift regulation and investment dollars will flow, um, actually isn't true, uh, that, um, that there is actually no way to determine whether a rule change like that has an impact one way or the other on investment, but the actual numbers themselves show that there was no significant change whatsoever. So it's interesting that the whole premise of, of this reversal, which happened in 2017, was built ostensibly on a lie, uh, a lie about this idea um, that regulation is will hamper investment. Um, the numbers just don't add up. I wonder now if it's time to talk a little bit about also uh, one of the ways in which we've gotten to this point where 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 what goes over the internet the 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 term we use net, as network neutrality but the idea that um, who who gets the power to control who gets the fastest lane on the internet and how that impacts uh, you know um, uh, both corporate media but as well as completely independent media uh, because we know that there was a time on the internet where they both got the same the same sized pipe, which was very, which was a revolution for information. It's why the internet was so exciting uh, in the early aughts or the late the late nineties. Um, it's why it's still exciting today, despite these threats now, uh, because this decision sort of leaves that um, leaves that uh, exciting version of the internet uh, completely uh, at at the mercy of the owners of these pipes, the ISPs. Uh, how did we get to the point where where they had all this power? Where in every city or town where you get the internet, you barely have a choice at all. It's, it's generally speaking a, a a duopoly, if not a complete monopoly, between uh, two companies that provide the internet. Um, was that also just sort of a given of how how this marketplace was going to develop, or or did we? Yeah, uh, is it is a sort of a similar story where without regulation we just get. Uh, we get the marketplace is dominated by by large players who have economic interests in in controlling the content. It's it's not an easy answer. How did we arrive in a situation where we have, um, from a local perspective, deregulated monopolies? And the, the thinking used to be that you know if you have a monopoly like AT and T used to have a monopoly over telephones, it had to be regulated. Um, if you had competition, then the marketplace would discipline abuses. And if you were being abused or cheated on or somehow unhappy, overcharged by one provider, you could then, you know, go across town and, 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 and you know, find, find another one or have multiple choices of providers that could provide you with better service. But unfortunately, uh, that dichotomy no longer exists. What we have are deregulated monopolies and um and the reason that that you know, there's a history you have to look at a long history 
of the FCC, you have to look at a long history of Congress where the companies that are in these positions of power have, have incredible political power that is expressed through the money, the tens of millions of dollars that they spend on campaign contributions, uh, on think tanks, on PR firms, on lobbyists in Washington, D.C. that have basically allowed them to rewrite the rules um, till that, on the one hand, allowed them to consolidate power and, uh, on the other hand, allowed them to deregulate the rules that, that governed their industry. Um, and even at the local level, uh, you, where you have, um, where a cable provider, for example, will come into a community, uh, they often negotiate what are called franchise agreements, which say, say that, that we will be, you know, the, the, the city doesn't want five cable providers stringing cables over their telephone poles. Having one, you know, I, I live in a, in a city where, where, where the telephone poles are, are like a, a spider's nest of cables um, going into homes because we have, uh, we have these cable systems. And so the cities would negotiate and say, you know, we will give you, we, will, we don't want five companies and all of their cables messing up our streets. We will give you a local mop monopoly uh, to be the sole cable provider for our town uh, in exchange, the, the cable companies would give them uh, resources to build local uh, community access, what are called peg channels, mm-hmm. um, things like that. Um, and as a result of that low, very localized um, regulatory process, we also got monopolies. So it, as I said at the beginning of this somewhat lengthy ex- explanation, uh, the, you know, there are a number of factors that contribute to the situation that we have today which is not very good, where we have yeah. very few providers. We tend to pay more for broadband services uh, than what uh, people in other countries are paying. Um, and uh, and uh, it's all a result of a, of a very powerful corporate lobby. Do any, do any countries out there have a public option for the Internet where, where, it's, uh, where, you know, where it's not left up to for-profit companies to decide uh, – what what's worth the while to run through the pipes, but but it's uh, but you know it's state owned internet provider. Is that also a pipe dream? It does exist in other other countries, and there 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 are different systems. Some will have um, what's called open source, and I think people recall um, may recall some of us who are a little bit older remember um, when uh, we had old dial up systems. Um, and at that, it's it, because the internet service was being carried over the phone lines. Um, you had one wire basically coming into your home um, that was controlled. Um, they allowed um, several providers to provide their services over that one wire. So you had a time back in the AOL days when you had as many as twenty. Um, ISPs offering you dial-up services. Some of them gave you the service for free in exchange of, you know, of of of, of advertising over the network. Yeah. And um, and that model, can't, it does exist today in other countries where the infrastructure, it may be a fiber connection or, or a, a coaxial connection that comes into your your home, is shared by a number of services. I could, I, um, I, and it becomes. And much as a result, it's much more competitive. With competition, prices go down, and in theory, you know, quality of services increases. It's a little improves. utopian or pie in the sky at this stage of 2020 uh, to talk about. But you can imagine a 
an infrastructure project where as soon as the roads and the bridges were safe and as soon as every uh, American had clean, safe drinking water and uh, maybe after we solved the problem of homelessness so there's housing for everybody, uh, fiber optic internet across the land uh, would be would be a stimulus, an economic stimulus to uh, provide jobs to Americans to lay to lay the to lay the fiber, and then who could imagine the the stimulus to the culture and the economy that comes from having a truly uh, open internet uh, everywhere? It would be um, it'd be neat, but uh, that's not the story. I reject the idea that that's a pipe dream, though, Eric. Well, thank um, you. I appreciate if we that. Switch to him. No, I, I'm. Honestly, if we switch to a municipal-based system, we would have a more open system that was more equitable. Remember that, Tim kind of mentioned this, but I don't think he alluded on it all the way, is that cable companies start the internet process with a monopoly at the local level, and they leverage that into being a series of pretty, pretty consolidated firms with local monopolies in most places where there's very little competition in this industry. Part of what the FCC argued is that if we just open this up, there'll be more broadband development, there'll be more competition. But really, in the United States, the the amount of broadband competition at the local level is quite small. You're saying that and they if, argued this about about ten years ago or so. They're saying that just, yeah, just let it let it let the let the thing open up, and you'll see the investment will flow. Right, and they've been arguing that ever since against basically all evidence to the contrary. I mean, there's still large sections of the United States here in Minnesota, where I am, that don't have what would even qualify as minimal broadband speed available. And to even think that there's anything approaching broadband, you have to include some pretty awful DSL from across the state here. Mm -hmm. The development has never happened outside of major metropolitan areas. And that's a direct legacy of old regulation that made cables into local monopolies in various places. They, they, the cable companies used a lot of market power that they had exclusive market power to leverage that into the position that we're in today, where there is very little competition. Tim Carr, senior director of Free Press, uh, you're you're not just uh, you know Dr. Christopher Terry, whose voice we just heard, uh, teaches media law and and watches the FCC. Uh, to understand it in order to, um, geez, like almost like a historian. But you, Tim Carr, you work at a, a public policy uh, advocacy and organizing uh, entity there at Free Press in New York City and Washington, D.C. What is to be done? What is your recommendation to our listeners? Well, I mean, I think we need to continue to remain hopeful. As I said earlier, There, there is amazing public momentum in support of net neutrality. Public polling shows that both Democratic, Republican, independent voters in very large majorities, more than 80 percent, support the net neutrality rules that were put in place in 2015. Um, so we do have the public on our side. And as an organizer, I can say that, that the, pub, the people that I encounter on a daily basis are incredibly enthusiastic about this issue. They're willing to, to come out on the streets and protest. We had a series of protests across the country in front of Verizon stores about a year ago. People came out in the middle of winter by the th hundreds and thousands to do that activity. They'll show up in Washington, D.C. to meet with their members of Congress. And, th and, and I am a firm believer, despite a lot of the cynicism of our time, 
that that level of public act- activism works. And I've seen it over the 15 years that I've been working on this issue. The number of members of Congress who were afraid to deal with us in 2006 because they, they were getting money from these very powerful phone and cable companies. They didn't want our advocates to come in their offices and, and tell them that that was the wrong thing to do to take that money and oppose net neutrality. But that has shifted dramatically. We now have on the record, you know, uh, a, a, a very large number of elected representatives who are willing to come out in support of net neutrality. So I think momentum, even though this has been a back and forth battle, as we've been talking about um, over the last 45 minutes or so, the, um, the momentum is clearly on our side. And I think it'll only get better as more people get engaged and get engaged in the political process. So that that's one ending. <laughs> that's the ending of the radio show, I think. Uh, Christopher, you had threatened to take us into the weeds. I wonder if it would be fun uh, at this stage uh, for the... Oh, we don't... We don't have time for the Chevron Doctrine talk. <laughs> what? So I know. So this this would be for the podcast audience, and I I don't know what what was the most fascinating and uh, surprising thing about the decision that is that that even even if it's too complicated to describe without you know a whole other hour like what what happened this that week? The agency's decision wasn't arbitrary and capricious. I mean. It was procedurally bad. What the agency did was procedurally bad when they did it. It was based on faulty logic that there's all evidence to the contrary to now. And the fact that there wasn't any need to do it, right? That that alone made it arbitrary and capricious, I think. I mean, the, the FCC was fighting in court to not let the other case go to the Supreme Court while they were trying to hand this down. And that should have been part of this decision, I think. Uh, There is no reason for this order to be upheld. Now, the way it gets upheld is that the court, the judges on the court, basically couldn't agree on any other outcomes. So they basically said, well, we're just going to take a step back and let the FCC do what it wants. And that was pretty much how it worked. That was succinct. I I expected. uh, That was great. I've been Um, thinking about it for like 40 minutes. So Yeah. (laughs) Um, okay. If you want me to get really technical, I can go there, Eric. Well, of course. It'll take like five um, hours. Yeah, geez. What, I mean, the, the, whole decision, the whole decision reads like an administrative law textbook does. I mean, it's basically all in there. Sections of the APA that are relevant to administrative process. There are sections in there that deal with the Chevron Doctrine, which is the court's basically a, a mandate to the court to sort of stand out of the agency's way when everything seems like it makes pretty decent sense. Um, there's there's things in there about whether or not the court should substitute its judgment for the agency. I mean, it is, the citations in that case are, it reads like an administrative law book. And what does that, what does I that was, mean? That, I mean, you're well, saying... Well, it's, it's a really technical, it's a really technical decision. The court basically says, we... We don't necessarily agree with all of these things, but we, you know, we're we don't want to substitute our judgment for that of the agency. Okay. And the agency followed most of the rules that it was supposed to follow, so we're going to let them have this one essentially. Huh. Now, I mean, this case, um, I've actually been talking to some people on the other side of the issue about this for a while, just sort of in the what happens next conversation. Legitimately, um, the appeal is probably a month out. 
then if it takes as long as it took to litigate this for this decision to come up or the U.S. telecom, you're talking about 250 days, give or take a few, then that would be the unbank review. And then from there it would be about that long again before the Supreme Court might have a crack at it. So you're talking, you're going to be well into the next administration before this is resolved. And that doesn't include the soon to be at least 50 state battles that are going to break out right. in court over preemption. I mean, we are, I don't know why the FCC wants to spend this much time in court, but apparently that's the plan for the next uh, few years. They, they, they have, uh, they hold stock in, in law firms that, uh, Apparently, I made that up. Um, and so what it, I mean, and I guess it, one of the things that we could say here uh, at the conclusion of the interview is that it it would be interesting now to watch to see if the Internet service providers are going to start to um, expect the toll to be paid, because up until this point, um, as near as we can tell, if I'm not wrong, uh, they haven't they haven't throttled anything. They haven't taken they haven't put their hand out since. uh during the Trump administration. Uh, well, can I tell you something that happened this week to me? Ah, yeah, I sure. I had a student ask. So I mentioned the, the case decision in class this week on uh, early in the week. And then yesterday when I was teaching, I had two students independent of each other ask me why their Netflix wasn't working yet. So I don't know that I, I don't have any actual evidence that it's already starting to happen, but people are starting to pay attention to the fact that it might be happening. There you go. And Tim, and Tim Carr is that... the large part, I agree with Tim. I think that the public ish, the public's opinion on this is radically different than when the FCC's issue, uh, opinion on it is or position is on it. And I, because of that, I expect Congress will finally get off its duff and do something about it. And but I, not for a while yet. And I, it's Got like, a few other things. What there. are what are consumers supposed to do? Or I mean, is this going to get is is somebody like you know who works in uh, on a national news organization going to do the research to figure it out? Um, how do we even know what is happening with our internet? If if people start experiencing a slower Netflix, as an example, um, is right. It's it's not easy. Do? Yeah. Because there, you know, if your Netflix uh, appears to be slowing down, there could be multiple yeah. reasons for that. It could be something just, happening I, on the yeah. hearing side, or yeah. and or it could be it an, interesting that after I brought it up yeah. in class, people were immediately freaking out about it well, because and- they were like. You know, they were seeing effects that were related to what had happened in the decisions. Well, and it's a reasonable thing to already. And it's a reasonable thing to mention here on the radio show and podcast because this is now the situation where we're going to be in for a little while. Is this just going to be like a? Is this a conspiracy theory? Is this evidence, or is this the world we live in now, where the internet's gonna, the internet is going to change, but we aren't going to know exactly how. Although um, you've informed me that under the law, they need to. The internet service providers will need to uh, tell consumers that they're doing it. Yeah. So all they yeah, have to and, do is- and it, 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 it's interesting to some extent because that because while this has been a contentious issue, while we were waiting for this court decision, while there's legislation that's moving through Congress, the internet service providers have been wisely, I think, on their best behavior, right? right? Yeah. Because the last thing they want is an egregious example of net neutrality violations of blocking of a service, a blocking of a website, blocking of, of streaming, <laughs> blocking uh, to, the come, to, from to appear on the front job. page of the New York Times, because that would, you know, members of Congress read their local newspapers. 
And if something is so egregious that it gets in the press, it gets in the news, um, there's likely to be a backlash against ISPs, a backlash against the FCC that ruled alongside ISPs uh, to get rid of these net neutrality protections. So for, for the time being, um, they've been on, I think, their best behavior. Um, and uh, but, but I don't know how long that's going to last. And we, we could soon very well see these types of violations where, where you have your students coming and, you know, talking about their Netflix uh, not working. And, uh, and it is actually an intentional uh, effort by your ISP to, to block that service. Yeah. And again, here on Radio Survivor, we, uh, Netflix is interesting. We, we like watching Netflix occasionally, but, uh, but, but really we're talking about um, also the ability of independent media outlets, of radio stations, of college radio stations. Absolutely. And as well as um, uh, peg channels, right? Because these are these, there's no difference when we talk about community media in 2020, you know, whether it's serving up uh, sound or video, it's all, it's all community media, as well as whether it's uh, one person out at a protest broadcasting their point of view over their, over their mobile phone. All of this is, uh, is very interesting and important, and we want to keep the, the lanes open. Yeah, and I I agree with you entirely. I didn't want I don't want this to seem like this. You know, we're all fighting yeah. so we can have our Netflix. I think it's really important uh, that we support local, right. non-commercial, independent media and make sure that they have access to an open network. But we but we use net we use Netflix as an example because it happens to be an indie. I mean, it's a gigantic entity, so it we can see it's we can see its presence across the nation. But it's also uh, it's not. It's not in uh, in business. It doesn't have business ties with the ISP companies, and so it's always a very fascinating. It really is a. It's not a canary because it's tremendous, but it is the canary in the coal mine of of network neutrality. So it's why we talk about it. Uh, because when when you know if ne- if if they're if they're doing something to Netflix, uh, it's easier to see than uh, than than if they're throttling one person's. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what else we could see. I mean, I know that in back in 2005 or so, the story was that uh, an internet service provider was stopping one individual who happened to be an engineer and could measure it, stopping his ability to share Edison real uh, audio on a peer-to-peer network. And he proved that it was being throttled and that sort of uh, – that opened a whole can of worms with network neutrality uh, so long ago that uh, – uh, it's it's almost um, ludicrous to bring it up. That's what led to case. the Comcast case? Yeah. Well, uh, the barbershop quartets. Uh, the, the, it was recordings of barbershop quartets that were that um, were being shared over over uh, over a network that were were blocked, and, and and the the fan of the barbershop quartets also happened to be an in, a network engineer who managed to figure out what was happening, and that Comcast was was, you know, proactively uh, blocking peer-to-peer services. I just think it's funny. That story is so old now that barbershop quartets were pop music when that happened. um, (laughs) Yeah. uh, Well, Timothy Carr, Senior Director of Free Press in New York City, thank you so much for joining us today on Radio Survivor. My pleasure. And Dr. Christopher Terry, Assistant Professor of Media Law and Ethics at the Hubbard School of Journalism at the University of Minnesota. Thank you so much for joining us one more time on Radio Survivor. Anytime. 
Thanks, Eric, for bringing on Professor Christopher Terry, of course, an old friend of the show, and Tim Carr from Free Press, who's also been on the show before. I really appreciate them spending some time to help us and our listeners better understand the implications of network neutrality and an open internet uh, for our communications future, really, and and at least showing us where uh, there are still battles to be fought and possibly won at the local and state level. We will, of course, try to keep everyone updated on this as best as we yeah, can. Yeah, I mean, you know, this this decision was not great, but it certainly is still very exciting. It could be worse. And <laughs> the story of the network, the, the story of the internet has yet to be finished. And it's going to be a really interesting year to watch, you know, to watch this struggle over um, keeping the, the internet open and free on the local level. There's going to be a lot of uh, news to follow in the in the coming year. What do you think about it? Are you worried about the future of an open internet? Is it, or have you, or have you thrown in a towel, or do you do you not think that this is going to be as big of an impact as as perhaps we think it is? Let us know. Drop us a line. Send an email to podcast at radiosurvivor dot com. And of course, if you miss any of today's show, if you're tuning in on the radio and you'd like to go back and listen, or you want to catch older episodes of Radio Survivor, we're available as a podcast. Go to radiosurvivor.com slash podcast for links to all the major platforms like Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, etc., where you can listen to this show. And of course, we are heard on two dozen plus community radio stations around North America and Ireland. If you want to find your local affiliate, go to radiosurvivor.com well eric once again thanks uh for bringing on professor terry and tim carr uh i learned a lot i hope our listeners did too yeah it was a real pleasure it's always uh it's a privilege to be able to 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 share a little bit of uh, news and information on these airwaves and i want to thank everyone for listening